Well, good morning, church. So we're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you want to turn there. And we are in on for a journey. You know, our objective, if we had like an umbrella, our umbrella uh, is to recover the mission. And, um, you know, physically, in our world, it's like we have just come through a major storm. Uh, and I think the storm is, for the most part, past, but it has just left us with a whole bunch of debris. And I kind of foresee just... Uh, that we also have gone through somewhat of a spiritual storm in our culture as well. Uh, just all the things that have transpired over the year has just really left us beat up. Um, and one of the things that we have to do when a storm comes, I mean a major storm, whether it's a flood or a hurricane, a tornado, uh, whatever it would be, is what? You got all this debris, it is time to just start acknowledging all of the debris and start picking it up and sorting through it and deciding what you keep, what you don't, and you just move on. So as we think about this kind of concept and this, this idea and realize that we have gone through a spiritual storm as well, sometimes we just have to um, be willing to pick up the debris, decide what to keep and what to not uh, and start cleaning up the mess. Um, they say hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, uh, I think our hindsight came in twenty twenty one. Hopefully, is what I'm thinking. Is that uh, twenty twenty is over? Uh, but it has left us with some hindsight, and for us to just learn from some of the things that we wish we would have done different, some of the things that we can do better, um, and uh, move on from there. So we are going to recover the mission. Hindsight says, uh, if I had known that that flood was coming, I would have what? I would have bought flood insurance. If I knew that that, that hurricane or tornado was coming, I would have made sure that I had paid up all of my insurance bills. That's what hindsight says, right? Hindsight can be helpful to some degree, but it doesn't fix the past. Anything you wish that you would have done differently last year? Now, come on, you got to participate a little bit. Either smile or raise your hand. Anything different? Any attitude that you wish you would have you know, had different attitude about? Anyone wish that you would have been a little kinder last year? Anybody? Anybody wish that you had been a little more compassionate? A little less angry at your enemies? Anybody? Anybody wish that you would have loved your electronics a little less and loved Jesus a little more last year? Anybody wish that uh, you would have been more like Jesus in the workplace, at school, a little more like Jesus at home, more focused on his mission, a little less focused on other people's mission, a little less focused on your own mission? You see, hindsight, you know what hindsight bias is? Have you ever heard of that? Hindsight bias is a psychological phenomenon that allows people to conceive, 
to convince themselves that an event that they had, uh, let me start over. Hindsight bias is a psychological phenomenon that allows people to convince themselves after an event that they had accurately predicted it before it happened. Like they, after it happens, boy, I saw that coming. That would be like hindsight bias, right? Uh, This can lead people to conclude that they can accurately predict other events. For instance, if the Chiefs are win the Chiefs, win the Super Bowl again this year, right? Some of you are going to say, well, I saw that coming. But in reality, did you really see it coming? Do you really know? No, nobody knows. In fact, they got to win today before they even get there, right? But that's what hindsight... Here's another example. George the dog, he runs out into the street. And hindsight bias says, well, I knew that was going to happen. But you didn't really know that was going to happen, that George was going to get run over. Because if you really knew it was going to happen, what would you have done? You would have done something to prevent George from running out into the street. Like maybe put up a fence or something. Unless you don't really like George. I mean, you know, if you don't really like him, then maybe you just let your your uh, prediction go ahead and take place. But hindsight bias doesn't cause action. But it can be... You know, hindsight can be helpful, um, but it can cause us to learn from the past, right? So you replace George with Frank, and while Frank's just a little puppy running around in your, your, your living room or something playing, hindsight tells you what? It gives you insight, and your insight leads to foresight, which is actually where action takes place. And so while little, you know, Frank is playing in your living room, you're out building a fence around your yard so that Frank doesn't get run over like George. You learn from your mistakes. You take action. You know, it's time, church, that we recover the mission of Jesus Christ. That that's all our focus is as individuals, which is as a church, because that's what we are. A church isn't a building. It is individuals that make up the church. And for us as followers of Jesus Christ, that we actually say, you know what, it is time for his mission to be my mission. It is time for me to be all about whatever he wants to me to be about in life. It's time that we allow hindsight to give way to insight that leads to foresight, and we actually put some of this stuff to action. Hindsight always seems to show up too late. Have you noticed that? That's why we call it hindsight's 2020, meaning that, uh, you know, that's, uh, man, I wish I'd have done something different. But hindsight is an action. It can only lead to it. And, and you might think that it was an overreaction for the government to call into the National Guard to D.C. this week. Maybe you think it's an overreaction. I don't know. But the way I see it is it's a great illustration of hindsight leading to insight that gives foresight and you act upon what the past told you. And that's what we should do as a church, right? As we look back upon all that has transpired last year for us to look into this new year with hindsight and gain some insight, and allow that foresight to move us into something more positive. 
Some people might just want to live in, you know, hindsight bias. Well, I knew that was going to happen. We didn't know that was going to happen. There's no way we could have known that was happening. But, but it did happen. You know, in today's passage, here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What Paul does is he gives us insight. That came from hindsight. So think about this for a second. Paul gives us insight that came from hindsight. And he hopes, or maybe I should say, he expects it to lead his readers to foresight. Because that's where action takes place. And you today are one of his readers. Let's look at this passage together. Verse 1 through 6, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the, same, from the spiritual rock that, that followed them, the rock of Christ. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things, listen to this, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul, what he's doing is he's offering us some insight that was gained from the Israelites' hindsight, right? Here's how what they did and what they should not have done. And we should learn from them or we'll end up becoming just like them. In Exodus chapter 13, we read there about the, the Lord led the Israelites out of the wilderness or led them into the wilderness. He, he went ahead of them in this pillar of cloud, Right? I mean, there's just this cloud by day that they were just to follow. And, they, and they, just, they just followed it. If it moved, they moved. If it stopped, they stopped. And, and then at night, it would be this fire that would come up. And so sometimes they would move through the night. And, and if the fire moved, they moved. And if the fire stopped, they stopped. Everyone saw it. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, just Moses saw the cloud. And he was just telling the people, hey, the cloud's up. Oh, Really? I wish I could see that. No, they all saw it. They all saw the cloud. They all saw the fire. Every one of them did. Every one of them got to experience this. Every single one of the Israelites came out of Egypt, saw this. Every one of the Israelites that came out of Egypt had to cross through the Red Sea. Not just some of them, right? All of them did. And and how did they cross the Red Sea? They didn't have to swim across the Red Sea. What happened? It was parted. The the waters were parted and they walked across on dry land. Every one of these Israelites also saw not only that they got to walk across dry land, but that their enemy was swallowed up in the water, wasn't it? They all saw it. This, This miracle, this power of God in their lives. Nobody would have had to say, you know, I wish I would have been there and saw that. They all were there. They were all delivered. They were all you know, experienced the same thing. Not one of them had an advantage over the other, did they? Right? 
And that's why it says all were baptized into Moses. All of them. Underline all. Not some of them. All of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all experienced the same thing. They all got to the same place. And they all ate of the same spiritual food. It's not like God fed some of them and didn't feed some of them spiritually. He fed all of them the same, you know, a buffet. Every one of them. They all ate from the manna that came from heaven. They all ate from the, the water that came out of the rock. I mean, drank the water that came out of the rock. No one of them had an advantage But they, not, they didn't all get out. Some of them stayed in the desert. That's where they died, most of them, almost all of them. God was not pleased with them. Isn't that what our scripture says? And isn't it what Paul says is we should learn from their hindsight? As they're dying in the desert, don't you know that they were being like, man, I wish I had a do-over? Man, I wish I would have done things differently. I wish my attitude would have been better. I wish I would have trusted. I wish I would have been more focused on God and less focused upon my little world, what was going on. Don't you know that that's what they were in their hearts? They were just yearning for, man, I wish I had a do-over, but they didn't get a do-over. But here, let me tell you something. We can learn from their hindsight and it can lead us to insight that can propel us to foresight and we can do things differently. And that is why Paul is telling you this. His readers. He has given you an opportunity here to not be like them. You see, just like them, we all are on the same plane. Can any of us, can any of us say, well, I didn't know. We all are fed from the same spiritual book. We all have the same access to the same God. We, we all have the same resources available to us. None of us are without excuse. The only thing is, is what are you going to do with what you know? How are you going to act? Do you think that there... They were responsible for their outcome. Like, they have nobody to blame but themselves. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that same logic is applied to you as well? Like, if I go down with the ship, I got nobody to blame but myself. Can't say, well, that preacher wasn't very good. Or I just was hanging around the wrong crowd. We have no excuses. It's no different for us. We have the same teaching. We have the same spirit. When God gave out spirits, he gave out the same spirit to each single one. Holy Spirit to talk to them, to advise them, to be their cloud, to be their, their fire at, by night and their cloud by day. We're, we're led by the same God, Right? And we all have to decide how we're going to respond to this God's guidance and this God's leading. Every single one of the Israelites did not come out of the desert besides two, Joshua and Caleb. I don't know about you, but I want to be a Joshua 
or a Caleb. And so I'm just thinking, man, what did they do that was different than the rest? As verse 5 says, God was not pleased with them. Why does, why does Paul tell us these words? Why, why does he tell his readers this? Why does he want us to rehash their really bad experience? What can we gain from hearing about their failures? Well, at verse 6 it says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He so much wants us not to desire evil as they desired evil. I don't know, church. The church needs to listen to that. Do you think? That we don't desire evil? Look at verse 11. It says, Now these things happen to them as an example that they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages hath come. So I think, and there's a verse in the midst of all this too, that I think we should take heed. I think, and in fact, the verse that's in the middle here says, take heed lest you fall. Like, don't think that you are above this and that, well, it's not going to affect me. I'll be fine. Do we not face the same temptations that they face? In fact, there's a verse here about that too, right? That says, no temptation has seized us except what is common to man. Like, you have not invented a new temptation. You haven't. Every temptation you have, they had. So what are these common temptations? Well, let's look at them for a moment. Verse 7 says... Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. How is that an idolater, that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play? I don't know. I mean, I guess in, in my thinking is as they sat down to eat, what did they eat? Manna that came from God, right? Is that what they ate? What did they drink? Water that God provided through a rock, of all things. So they ate of his food, they drank of his drink, but then they got up and they made life about everything else other than God. They just got up and played. They didn't get up to worship or praise God. I just feel like that what it's trying to convey here, because he says, do not be idolaters, and we know what an idolater is. It's making something that is in your life that is more grand than you picture God to be in your life. Like something more important, that something that you prize more, something that you've elevated more than God. And God says, do not make any idols. Anything that you, don't put anything in your life that you prize more or, or behave as if it's more important to you. So evidently their play was... What does it mean that they did that? I, I think this 
They just made life about something other than God. I think that sometimes we can lose a disconnect with when we read the Bible, we think, well, that's them and this is us. Like, I can't relate to that. And we somehow don't see that they were the same as us. And that's why it's so important that Paul puts that in there, that no temptation is sees you what is common to man, that you, you are being tempted with the same things they were tempted with. They were just like you people. And you're like, well, they didn't have smartphones. They didn't have homes. They lived in a desert. They didn't have anything. They don't have near the temptations that I have. They didn't have fancy cars. They didn't have boats or pools, nice clothes. In fact, they only had one thing on the body. And God allowed it not to ever wear out, which is amazing, isn't it? I sometimes share with my kids about my childhood. And that wasn't that long ago in my head, right? It was before them, obviously, But it wasn't that long ago, but when I share with my kids about what life was like when I was, you know, a child growing up or a teenager or something like that, they just all look at me like, I'm sure glad I didn't live back then. Probably like when you guys used to tell me about having to go out to the, you know, the hole in the ground to go to the bathroom. (laughs) And you didn't have running water. That's probably the way I thought like when, when you were telling those stories. But Jeremiah, he, he says to me, he says, Dad, I bet you are really bored. I mean, you didn't have a phone? What did you do? You, you, didn't, you didn't have a computer or Netflix? What did you do? And it's just kind of hard for them to relate, even to just a generation back. So I have no doubt that it's hard for us sometimes we read the Word of God and we just think, I can't relate to those people. But they were just like you. And the temptations weren't any different. Let me tell you something. It was just as easy back then to replace God with something else as it is today. And don't, don't think that you are not being tempted to replace God with something in your life. Don't think that. Don't think that some of you need to really consider letting go of whatever you've put before God in your life. Just like they needed to. Most of them all failed. And Paul is just not wanting you to experience the same you know, end result as them. It's easy to replace God. You know, Frank Herbert Dunn says, no more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero. Why why would he say that? Why would that be a disaster? No more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero. Because that hero could replace their God, couldn't he? That hero could become more important to them than their God. 
becomes more important. They're, they could begin to, if they're not careful, see this hero and think that all of life is, is, needs to be focused on that. You know what? I need to do what he has called me to do. I need to make life about this guy. He is such a hero. Or this gal, she is such a heroine. <laughs> is that right? That's not like drug, right? Okay. <laughs> you can start thinking that your hero has all the answers to the problem instead of God having the answers to the problem. You could begin to fight for him instead of fighting for God's mission, like you switched them somehow. When did that happen? I don't know. I didn't even see it coming. I mean, let's face it, there are a lot of Christians in 2020 who acted unlovingly. I'm Christians, I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about followers of Jesus Christ who could have been just a little more kind, a way more compassionate. They could have, they could have turned the other cheek instead of just trying to figure out a way to punch the other guy in the nose, right? They could have... When they were being forced to go a mile, they could have said, you know what, I'll go with you two miles. When, when they were asked for their tunic, they could have said, well, I'll just take my cloak also. But that's not what happened for so many Christians, followers of Jesus. It's just like there was so much resistance in 2020, so much, I'm going to stand my ground, you're not going to move me, because I have a hero that is just painting a different picture than Jesus painted. And I think he's got the answers. And Jesus is like 2,000 years not here anymore. Oh my goodness, it makes me sad. Is this how Jesus taught the church to act? Did we act? I mean, I'm talking about church. I'm not talking about West Side Christian Church. I'm talking about the church. Is that how Jesus taught us to act? Is the way that we acted in 2020? Is it? No, I, it's not. I, I don't. I can't read the Bible and come to that conclusion. He taught us to turn the other cheek when our enemy strikes us. Our enemy, not our body, not the person that's on the same team, the one who opposes us. Am I wrong, church? Am I living in a different world? Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, it says this. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I can't help but think that that could have almost been a motto for some of the church behavior that I saw last year. But I say to you, this is Jesus. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would 
sue you and take your tunic. Let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, that's, that's our hero talking, right? Is that not crazy, though? I mean, what, is Je- what would Jesus expect if we were to go back and do 2020 all over again? What would our hero expect us to do? To be compassionate and loving, merciful, forgiving, to go the extra mile for the enemy, not for our, our team, but to go to, to reach out. Why would our hero want us to do that? Our hero Jesus want us to do that. Because he has a mission. And he just knows that if he's going to accomplish what he set out to accomplish, it's going to be when all of his followers are behaving the way that he behaved when he was here on this earth. And Jesus, we're taught that Jesus didn't retaliate when he had all these people give false accusations, when they began to beat him. He could have clobbered them over the top of the head and sent them straight to hell. But he didn't. That's just not how he did things. And everybody that he is asked to come follow him, he is asked, you be like me in attitude. Is Jesus not our hero? Or have we replaced him with something else? How did the church of Jesus Christ turn into such angry people? How did that happen? Especially when Jesus, our leader, is kind and loving and forgiving and merciful and compassionate, others-minded. You see, idolatry is a serious issue. You, you, you got to learn... You've got to learn from the Israelites. Are you going to find out you woke up one day and you're just going to be like, I hope I was just like them. I was just like them. And it's not the only way, you know, just elevating a person above Jesus and all of a sudden they determine your behavior instead of Jesus determining your behavior. It's not just people that you have to be careful that you don't, you know, idolize. It can be stuff. They made a golden calf way back in the day before the phones, you know, the cell phones and stuff. But it's not that hard to make a golden calf today out of something else, is it? Paul David Tripp, he says this, the minute you hear a sermon on materialism, you're glad someone else is there to hear it. Because it's not me. People, things. But it's not the end of the list, is it? Verse 8, what does it say? We must not indulge in sexual immorality 
as some of them did. You mean they had that back then? And 23,000 fell on a single day because God just said enough. Our culture and every generation before us had issues with this. The church didn't invent it. It's always been. But I'd have to say that we've become experts in it. You know, I mean, it is just, I think, rampant. Do you remember chapter 5 of this book, 1 Corinthians? And what is it that Paul, before he tells them, we've got to learn from their hindsight, and we've got to gain some insight here. What is it that he is exposing? What is it that he is really hammering down on them about? There is sexual immorality that even the pagans, he says, don't even participate in it. Somebody in your church is sleeping with their mother, uh, stepmother, I assume, <laughs> father's wife. And, and he says, and you're proud of it. You brag about it. You boast about how gracious and loving. Oh, we're just so loving and accepting. And, and Paul just blown away by this crazy behavior. You see, the same stuff that was going on with the Israelites was going on with the very church that he was speaking of. And let me tell you, I could just about step in any church in the United States and somebody needs to hear this. It is there. And Paul gives basically two reasons there why this should not happen. One is it makes the church look really bad. It makes Jesus look really bad. His mission look really bad. And also, that guy's going to go, or that girl's going to go to hell. And so you better wake them up by kicking them out so that they maybe will come to their senses. So just give them over to Satan, he says. Because that's where, that's where they belong and who they belong to anyway. And they might as well just wake up and realize that that is their master. That is who they are serving. And hopefully they come back. A lot of commentators think that in, when he wrote 2 Corinthians that when he's pleading with them to be forgiving and welcome them back into the fellowship, that it's probably this guy that they threw out, and now he has come to his senses. And I pray to Jesus that that is the, the case. Here is the problem, church. Jesus isn't glorified when you're glorifying something other than him. He's not glorified. He is offended. He is, he is upset. He was not pleased, it says in our scripture, he was not pleased with the Israelites. And he's not pleased with people in the church that are doing the same thing that the Israelites were doing. Making idols and 
pursuing sexual activity that he never permitted outside of his realm. You know, it doesn't matter that we come and sing the latest songs. I like that last song, by the way. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter that we come and we sing the latest songs or we have the best online presence or we, you know, go to church three times a week or that we give, you know, regularly. If Jesus doesn't have our hearts, then he doesn't have us. If, he doesn't, if our hearts have been given to another, then that's who we belong to. And we need to learn from these people in the past that have really screwed up so that we don't find ourselves in the same boat. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, it says, You have heard, this is right after what I would just read to you earlier, but he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I'm pretty sure last year that the church has heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy because that's pretty much how a lot of that went down, right? But I, this is Jesus talking again, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have, church? Your challenge is to love those who do not love you. That's what really gets your Father God to perk up and be like, yeah, that's my kid. That's him. That's her. Do you see? Did you see that angel? Did you see how they just love their enemies even though their enemies treated them that way? And don't you know that a pleased father wants to reward his children? Do not even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet any if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And therefore must be perfect. Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. Therefore, because your Heavenly Father is perfect. You're His children. Children should behave the way that they have been instructed by their Father. And it makes, when you do that, it makes your Father look good. Now, some of you are fathers, and doesn't it just please you when your son represents you so well out there in the world? Right? I mean, doesn't it just fill you up with joy? It does me. In fact, I love it when Lori sends them off. She learned it from Dub, and I love it that Dub taught Lori this, but she would, like, send them off and say, now, remember who you represent, right? 
And she means that in both ways. Remember, you represent Jesus, but also you represent the Elrods, right? And it makes me feel good when my kids represent what I, the behavior I want them to have. It even makes me look good. Lori should get all the credit, but it makes me look good. And it makes your Heavenly Father look good when you love your enemies instead of writing all this junk about your enemies, participating in all of that slang and and hate and anger and unforgiveness and unmerciful behavior. That doesn't make God look good. Let me tell you, there was a storm this year, this last year. And I don't think the church fared very well in it. But it's time to pick up the debris, figure out what we need to throw away, what we need to gather and keep. And let's just refocus and recover this mission. Your actions expose your true love. And for some of us, we need to decide if we need to change. If we need to change channels, if we need to change partners. We need to make a decision if Jesus is really our all in all. Or if we left him for another. Who owns you? If your enemies got to be, got to testify today, and they were completely honest, not biased, but they were just honest, your enemies testified today, who would they say owns you? Because if you were loving your enemies, they would know who you belong to. They would know whose side you're on. Or would they just say, no, they're just part of that political party. No, they just are after collecting toys. No, they just think nothing more about life than sex. No, they just are trying to get to the next level in their job. Verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, You must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpent, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, that they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let Anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. You know, it is, it's the alcoholic who says, you know what, I got this, right? I, I can stop this anytime I want. It's only the recovering alcoholic that says, I need help. And that's why we're in recovery right now. Is this time for the church to say, you know what, I need help. I need help to just make this life about you. 
to make your mission my mission. Your ways my ways. Your thoughts my thoughts. It's the idolater who says, I got this. I can, I can make it about Jesus. Just give me a Sunday and a church to head to. I'll show you how to make this about Jesus. And then Monday through Saturday, it's a whole different story, isn't it? You see, it's, the only, it's only the recovering idolater who realizes I can't even breathe without it being all about Jesus. I've got to be all his or none. And the moment that I make it about something else is the moment that I know I will fall off the wagon. He's got to have all of me. And you can give excuses all the way to the grave. Verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And Paul is just saying, Look, people, you have no excuse. If you end up in the, the grave in the desert instead of entering into the promised land, it is on you. I have given you everything that you need. I've even given you hindsight from the Israelites to propel you to insight, to give you foresight, right? Are we church? Are we church? Are we going to recover the mission of Jesus Christ? I mean, we can't do anything about the church. But we can do something about Westside Christian Church. And are we going to recover the mission of Jesus Christ? Are we going to be a body of believers that we make everything about Jesus from here on out? Are we going to represent him? When we leave these doors, are we going to represent him Monday through Saturday? When we're on Facebook, are we going to be representatives of him? Are we going to be representatives of making, making sure my enemies and my neighbors all know that I love Jesus Christ and him alone? Is that what we're going to do, church? Because that's how you recover the mission. That is the mission. That's the mission. Or are, are we going to go down in history like the Israelites, eat, drinking? And have your party. You know, they had equal knowledge and equal access, equal opportunity, and only Joshua and Caleb made it out. Shouldn't be too shocked. Jesus says what? Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the road that leads to life, and only few find it. Where are you at? Where are you at? If it will require us to make Jesus Christ and his kingdom above everything else in our lives. If we're really going to recover this mission. It's going to require us to draw some lines. 
And maybe the lines that we draw, Jesus' lines that we draw, maybe will thin us out. I don't know. But that should not be a concern of ours. That's all on Jesus, right? Our job is just to make him everything. Everything. Let me pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much, Father, for letting us learn from the past and, and learn from others' mistakes. You've given us an opportunity here, Father, to allow their mistakes to propel us to some foresight into changing our our behavior and our thought process, our attitude. Help us to throw off grumbling and complaining and pick up just worship to you. Help us to put our trust in you, Father, to glorify you in all that we do. It's in uh, your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Lori uh, set me a table. And as we go into communion, I thought it would be appropriate, you know, after talking about what we just talked about. uh, You know, it's time for us to to make a decision what table we're going to sit at. You haven't read the rest of the scripture, but that's, that's the conclusion that Paul is bringing us to today. I'm going to read it to you, but I just want you to know that there are a lot of tables to set at in this world. A lot of tables, you know, to feast upon, to get your nourishment from, to get your fill. And I don't know what table that you have been feasting around in 2020, but I, I just want you to know that, that Jesus is offering a table that, that provides eternal life. I want to read to you the rest of our passage of Scripture. It's in verse 14 through 22, and that says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's true, isn't it? Consider the people of Israel. He wants us to consider them again. Are not those who eat the sacrifice participant in the altar? 
What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And then he gives us a choice that he learned from Jesus because Jesus told us, what well, you cannot have two masters. You're going to have to make a decision, right? Isn't that where Paul got this from? But this is what Paul says. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So you have got to decide whose table you're going to eat at. Or you eat in vain. And you drink in vain. And you eat and drink just so that you can go play. They had hindsight, no doubt. But they never had any insight that led to foresight. You can, because it's not too late. Hindsight by itself is just too late, right? Just acknowledging what I should have done is not going to do anything. It's making the change when you have the opportunity to change. And that's what communion is all about, is this acknowledging that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. He is my table that I get my feast from. It is he that I drink from. It is he that feeds me. And I'm not going to get my nourishment from anything outside of him. And it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a table that you participate in not just Sunday morning, but every day in between. Foresight is, according to definition, the action of predicting what will happen or what needs to happen in the future. It is the ability to see what is coming. Foresight moves us to action and it makes us do makes sure we do not get too complacent or comfortable. It demands that we move. Let us move into communion. Let me pray. Father God, we partake of this juice and this bread that represents the blood and body of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. We come, Father, not only acknowledging what he has done for us, but today we come acknowledging that you are our king. You are above all things in our lives, that there is nothing that we are not willing to admit today that we need to make less than you. Father, this is what unites us. We are partakers of this one 
body and this, this one juice. It makes us your children. And we just thank you for the opportunity, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.